0: Welcome to another episode of Tech Sales Craft. Our mission is simple. We want to bring exclusive insights from some of the most influential people in the technology sales scene. We want this podcast to become your weekly go-to for your tech sales inspiration. And if this is the first time you're listening, please subscribe to keep up to date with the latest releases.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to the latest episode of tech sales class with me, James Hansen Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Stephanie Jenkins from uh, California. Well, I should be saying good morning to you, really, shouldn't I?
0: Yes. Yeah. We're uh, about 9 a.m. here. Good, good morning.
1: <laughs> so um, I'm super excited to have you on the show for a, a couple of reasons. One, to talk through your movement from the banking world into uh, the world of SaaS and selling. But also, you've got the incredible experience of taking, uh, of working within a, an organization and sales going from the $7 million to over $300 million uh, revenue, which is an incredible feat. But before we, we get into that and dive into the detail, it would be great, if you could just give a little overview of exactly who you are.
0: Yeah. So I grew up in Dallas, Texas, um, and then went to university in upstate New York at Cornell University. I, like many people going to university, at least here in the US, had no idea what I wanted to do. So I decided to triple major in subjects that I really liked, chemistry, biology, and art history. The triple major, so I knew how to work really hard, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. And um, after university, I really wanted to go move out to California and be part of this great kind of tech scene out here, Silicon Valley, hear of these entrepreneurs, you know, Facebook yeah. is starting to like really blow up and you just get all these really exciting things. So I, uh, you know, had virtually no money, packed everything up in my broken down Honda Civic and drove out here to California with I think $2,000 in my bank account and which was, gave me about, you know, calculated about two months runway to get a job. And uh, not quite clear on what I wanted to do. So, you know, when I was searching around, the job that offered me the most money uh, was going into training. And uh, I didn't really know a lot about it, but they tended to hire very smart people. You looked at the resumes of everyone there and you're like, wow, okay, this is very impressive. They're promising me that I can make a lot of money. So let's go down this path. Let's see what it's like. And I spent several years there and it was a very cutthroat environment. You know, I was telling you earlier how, you know, we would hire people in packs of, you know, 10 to 30 and then cut them down by 80% by the end of the first month, you know, three months later, you'd be lucky if you had one person left in your hiring class. And it was really sink or swim. So they'd just throw you into the deep end and, you know, work you to the bone uh, 12 to 14 hours okay. a day and just see how much money you can make. But if you could make it, it was very lucrative, right? right? So, you know, still, I think one of those years I made more money than I do now, Yeah. Uh, many years later. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, it's an interesting lifestyle you know, where you're kind of always on the move, uh, always working. And, um, I think at the core of it is, is very much, you know, you're buying and selling. It's very negotiation based, you know, you're virtually negotiating all day long and, you know, thinking really fast, working really fast. So at the core of it, I do think is very much a sales process, even though the sales process, there's not very much discovery, you know, it's not very consultative, it's just straight negotiation. So I enjoyed my time there quite a bit. I think it, you know, gave me a really strong foundation for the future, but I remember, you know, at one point I was in Singapore for work. I was running on a treadmill and, um, trying to get some, some exercise there. And I had this like weird aha moment where I was like, what am I doing right now? Am I, Am I just screwing people over for money? Wait, (laughs) I think I am. So it was, it it just all of a sudden, you know, I think it had gone from feeling good to working there and feeling very successful Mm -hmm. to realizing that I'm not really putting a lot of good into the world. And for me, that didn't, didn't really resonate. didn't hit home. And it's tough when you have that revelation to continue to work 12 to 14 hours a day. Um, knowing that maybe what you're doing is not exactly good for everyone in this universe, despite the the money. So I remember coming back from that trip and immediately starting to look for jobs. And I'm like, I'm in Silicon Valley. Let's go find an awesome tech company that's doing awesome things. So I really started looking for very mission-driven companies to work for and kind of hyper-targeting into the, I need to put good into the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that goes back to like this chemistry biology, do like it comes to the core of myself of like, I wanna help make this place better, um, make this world better. Uh, So I found Glassdoor when we were really small, Um, we were about 7 million, less than 75 employees, less than, I think we had about 10, maybe a dozen salespeople at the time, no SDRs, no CS, And I hadn't really had a SaaS selling job before, but I was making so much money that I'm like, I can do this. You know, I'm I'm smart. I'm I'm a quick learner, let's throw me into the fire. And I became one of their, their first enterprise salesperson that they hired. So selling into the largest accounts. And this was an individual contributor role at the time in the early days of a SaaS company, it's, it's still so much about product market fit, you know, you're kind of evolving the product as you're selling it at in many of those really early stages, trying to see what's resonating with buyers, trying to see what sticks, you know, what people almost pay for. Yeah. Um, And that was a really, I think a really good fit for me at that time and was able to land a bunch of, you know, what became our largest logos and um, so many of the Fortune 500 companies. And our product continued to evolve over time. So we had SaaS revenue coming in. As we evolved, we added an ad revenue. um, And this became really interesting. We finally figured out marketing (laughs) and added that into the play a little bit later. Um, We got CS and SDR up and running and kind of slowly but surely crept back past 10 million, past 25 million, past you know, about 50 million and then continue to evolve our organization. We split our sales team eventually into new business and growth, which I think is a really highly efficient lever around 50 million. And then we continue to evolve those motions. And I began stepping into more and more leadership roles there. So I took over our account management division. So sales into our existing customer base and helped grow that out. We started self-service. I took over self-service, which is really fun to go kind of from SaaS sales led back to almost product led with self-service that's super fun took that over eventually took ended up uh switching my focus back to smb so small and medium businesses and in that space it's really interesting because once you get to a certain velocity you know once you get over 100 million in that space it really is so much of a machine and how do you get leads in leads through as quickly as possible In some segments, you know, in the very small business side, it's almost like order taking in some ways or rep assisted self-service. And then in the larger side of SMB, you know, call it 500 to 1,000 employees that very much mirrors an enterprise sale. So you have all this different division and all these different machines where leads and orders and routings and outbound and inbound go into. And it's a really complex and interesting problem to solve. So. I ended up spending eight years there, growing that business, and every year facing a brand new problem. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, after that journey, I took a entrepreneurial leap into a new and emerging market, um, yeah. the cannabis tech space. Yeah. So uh, you know, I don't know if many of your listeners are from the European market, so maybe not quite as big there. But it's really interesting because it's such a rapidly growing industry in the U.S. And you you almost never get new industries that pop up. And then of the new industries that do pop up, things that are just growing at such a rapid rate and have such high potential. So I ended up joining Flow Hub, which is very critically kind of positioned in the U.S. cannabis tech space. It creates all the technology to sell it compliantly, um, which is a very complex process. So that has been a very interesting transition and a very wild industry.
1: Um, So that's
0: been a little bit of my journey so far.
1: Excellent. Yeah. Well, I'd like to dive into um, the the beginning and, and, and understanding sort of like who Stephanie is. So, yeah, when you, when you went to um, San Francisco to, to find the job, and you went in trade, you weren't thinking about being trading. Most people who go no. trading, that's what they're looking for. And yeah, they, I know they
0: are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had and, no idea. <laughs>
1: do you you think the biggest pull once you were kind of interviewing obviously you saw the opportunity you had the conversation do you think the biggest pull was the other the standard of the intelligence of the other people or the money honestly
0: you know it's funny because i remember talking to the recruiter there and and i remember this is obviously very early in my career i'm just out of college and i remember them saying you know the these people who are going to interview you the hiring managers the vps etc they're going to ask you if you're money motivated you need to say yes to that. (laughs) And and I I remember thinking like, but am I money motivated? Like, is that, I just majored in chemistry and biology. If I was really money motivated, I might've done like economics or something. So I answered yes to that question. And I I have to say the money was always motivating. Like those commission checks were pretty spectacular and certainly kept me around for a, a very long time. But was it a primary motivation for me? No, I honestly, it was seeing the caliber of people that they were hiring. It was virtually all Ivy League graduates who yeah. are overachievers. I think we had like three people who had been to the Olympics on our team. They'd almost hire like exclusively ex-athletes with Ivy League educations, which I happen to be too. Yeah. So it was yeah. interesting to see the peer, my peer group around me so strong yeah. and the leadership group so strong too. So that was a, a huge motivating force.
1: Yeah, so would you say the money bit came after you'd had a taste of it because it's like once you once you've seen it and you've had it, you're actually oh that's that's quite nice, but it wasn't a big part of why you went to um, San Francisco or why you initially went there to to interview for the role?: No
0: it honestly it was a it was a I, I'm very happy that things ended out this way. Yeah. But I came to San Francisco with this dream of working in, you know, kind of big tech Silicon Valley and to change the world. Yeah. Um, And I ended up in a trading floor and I'm really glad I did because I think it gave me so many skills so quickly and, um, you know, taught this kind of ruthless, hardworking effort. But it it definitely wasn't the path that I had intended at all. It was honestly the job that offered me the most money. Which <laughs> uh, maybe like new grads can uh Thank resonate you. with and uh, uh, i didn't even think i thought this will be a step in the right direction we'll see where this goes
1: yeah um, Yeah. So so, so so once you realize it because uh, we speak to all the time now to particularly brokers now who are looking to come into i mean technology is now very much the um the buzzword how much do you owe a debt of gratitude to glass actually giving you a shot based on. Oh it. yeah. You know, I do owe a lot of
0: gratitude to our hiring manager, Scott Sinatra at the time brought me in and our CEO, Robert took a chance on me too, because I don't think they had hired someone with my background before, and especially putting them in enterprise sales, right? This is a huge risk. This is one of the biggest, you know, jobs that this is the biggest thing that you can get, but you could tell from the hiring profile that they were still very much figuring it out. Yeah. You know, I think I came on board with two or three other peers and it very much like at early startups, you kind of have to figure out that high, what that hiring profile looks like and what yeah. works really well and what doesn't work. Even at that stage, you're probably seeing, you know, 50, 50 success rate of your hires within the first year, because you're just trying to get the recipe and formula. Right. So, you know, I remember being onboarded with three other people, all of which came from very different backgrounds. Yeah. You know, I don't think, I think one other person, you know, ended up lasting a while there, but yeah. uh, the other two kind of quickly um, left, which is, you know, kind of a U.S. U.S. hiring thing, um, yeah. which is fine. I think they probably took a chance on me because, I don't know, I'm a smart, hard worker.
1: Yeah. And, um, so how did you find going into what would be classed as a consultative cell where you are solving business oh, yeah. with technology over cutthroat, are you doing it? Or are you not doing it? How did you find that transition? And what advice would you give to people who are looking at going through that that transition now?
0: It is an interesting transition because I imagined—I remember stepping into this role at Glassdoor. I'm yeah. doing, I'm talking to you know the biggest C-suite executives at the biggest companies. Yeah and I know nothing about a consultative sale. They've yeah. taken a risk on me and I'm a hustler who yeah. knows how to negotiate,
1: yeah. but
0: I have no idea how to do like a needs-based sale. And I didn't even know that I needed to. I remember, this is a, a kind of a funny story, but I, I, this was, I was probably like a month into the job at Glassdoor I uh, had just landed this big meeting with Marriott. I forgot who it was. It was a C-suite member. I think it was two of them. It was an initial discovery meeting. Keep in mind Glassdoor, no one had heard of at the time. So it was like a foreign name. And we had gotten the meeting by no joke, emailing the CEO of Marriott and it trickled down a couple layers to this person. So i got this big meeting all prepared. And my boss at the time had, you know, been watching my sales. And I think I was off to a strong start with like booking meetings, getting things in the door. But, uh, I, I really didn't know how to do a needs analysis. Yeah. I had no idea how to do, how to run discovery process. And the day before he's like, okay, we got to talk about your discovery. And I'm like, I just ask questions, <laughs> Like, just ask questions, right? The pain gain funnel, which I mean, I got very good at over the years, but this was yeah. in the beginning where I was I had very little knowledge of this, like ask, ask questions to try to identify their pain. Mm-hmm. Um, And I was, I remember at this meeting with Mary at this very important meeting, I was going to try to do this. I'm going to try to ask questions to identify the pain so I can sell the SAS product into the pain. (laughs) I started asking these questions on this meeting. And I remember them being like, stop, stop. Why are you asking these questions? And I'm like, I'm, I'm just asking, you know, about like what's going on there and what, what you are looking for. And they're like, stop. We don't know. This is, this is it. So they shut me down so hard. And then I attempted to like re-ask some other questions. My manager was like, what is she doing right now? (laughs) And the meeting went so poorly. It was probably the worst run sales meeting I've ever had. You know, everyone has one of those that sticks out in their mind. And, um, I think they ended up hanging up on me collectively within the first 15 minutes after me attempting to ask like two or three discovery questions. You know, I think this is—that's probably a pretty good example of how rough the transition can yeah. be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: so, I—I I certainly advice for people going from a very negotiation, you know, based high velocity. Yeah. Type of environment to uh, you know, selling a subscription product is to just do your research up front, you know, read a few books, like Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play is. I think one of my favorite discovery-based selling processes, books, books on it. Um, get comfortable with it, learn how to be curious up front. I mean, it, I could have prevented, probably prevented some initial embarrassment from that a terrible call, maybe would have landed an extra deal there. Maybe,
1: maybe. You need to go through those experiences, don't you, to, uh, to improve and develop. So you then become a good salesperson.
0: Yes, yes.
1: (laughs) At what point did you then decide that uh, leadership was then something that you wanted to do? And it's probably, I, I mentioned before that going from trading and being a successful salesperson doesn't always set the right track for being a leader but it looks like yeah. you fell into trading uh, it kind of found you rather than you than you found it what at what point did you think actually i i want to be a sales leader um, yeah and, and you want you want to help people
0: You know, I, I knew really early that I wanted to be a sales leader just because I, I do really love coaching others, you know, and I, I feel it in all areas of my life. I run, right. And I'm like, I'll be a pace leader. I love that stuff. (laughs) Um, it's nice to be able to help people through new and interesting problems to solve. Um, and that coaching aspect is so rewarding and seeing people improve is so rewarding. So I knew very early that I wanted to go into leadership but it t- it kind of took me a while to get there at Glassdoor because I also had this pull of once we really started growing, there were so many clients that I developed some really strong and deep relationships with, and some of these were some of our you know top enterprise clients, biggest spenders on the platform, people where I didn't want to disrupt the relationship for the health of the business, and I don't think anyone else wanted to either, so. It was a joy spending so much time getting to know our customers, growing these customers, developing really deep relationships with them. Some of which I still have relationships with too. And when it made a lot of sense is when we split our team into new business and growth eventually. And I was pregnant with my first son. And I think the maternal instincts kind of really took over at that point with, you know, I really want to leave now. And I think it's the time to do so. And I think it was a great transition point. And I also very much thank Glassdoor for you know me waddling around the office seven months pregnant and being like, "You can, you will be a manager now, (laughs) right?" (laughs) A maternity leave approaching. Yeah. So the first time I really got to be a frontline sales manager, that that's like one of the most rewarding jobs in the entire world. It's incredible to be able to give professionals a little bit of advice and a little bit of molding, a little bit of help on their discovery process after you figure it out. (laughs) And then see them grow so much and so quickly. And eventually once they master those skills and they're on to the next thing, it, you know, having them promoted off your team is the most rewarding experience a frontline manager can go through. It's it is heartwarming. I really loved it. Yeah.
1: So so let's dive into that that leadership piece there because obviously it's a critical part of your career and, and probably a really critical time uh for Glassdoor and what they were um looking to do so when you went into um, management on your first day of management what did your team look like Did you yeah hire people or were you hiring people
0: yeah we were growing incredibly rapidly so I remember we were about 10 people and we hired, had to hire four more by the time I went on maternity leave wow And I mean, the whole company, I think our leadership team was stretched so thin at that time that as many frontline managers, you just don't get a lot of training, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's generally tends to be a common theme. You know, you don't really get a playbook on how to be a frontline manager. Um, You don't really get, you know, four weeks in the classroom on how to do it. You kind of get thrown into the fire and you figure it out as you go. So I was... I, I tend to be a really avid reader. And I remember thinking, okay, if no one's going to teach me, I got to go read about it. So I read, you know, half dozen how to be a great sales manager books, yeah. you know, tried to figure out the hiring process. And at that time we were hiring, you know, kind of people with like, for my team specifically, it was a little more junior team, but one to three years of sales experience, which is, can be a really tough profile to hire for because yeah. they have enough, but not quite enough to be able to prove whether they've been successful or not so again we played around with the hiring profile a lot a lot with the hiring process and same with people uh management and development too you know i remember my i think a lot of first-line sales managers have this experience especially in the us where you walk in and the first thing you have to do is like put someone on a plan yeah and you're like no <laughs> i don't really know them
1: <laughs> yeah
0: So you, you know, you kind of got to go through the developmental phase too, but I've always thought, at least in the US, I think the development is a little bit different and, you know, the notice periods are a little bit different over across the pond. But um, generally when those things happen, I really believe in my heart of hearts that they're to get the person better, not to work them out of the organization. I think if you approach this, like this means that you have extra resources and extra help now to get you better at your job, then it tends to be a very successful outcome.
1: Now, at what point do you think your education came into play in a strong point as a salesperson or as a sales leader? And the reason why I refer to that is that sales and particularly leadership is seen as a science, a process and mm-hmm. a maths with a little bit of art, mm-hmm. which kind of falls under everything that you that you did. And, and doing physics is obviously definitely some maths involved um, in that. But when did you really understand that? process and sticking to a process is really important as a, did you grasp that as a salesperson, or did it really come home as a sales leader
0: for me there has been no other way to live my life <laughs> i'm forced into process yeah. the way i don't know the way my brain works is that everything is a spreadsheet my whole life is is in a spreadsheet somewhere different yeah. parts of my life I, I i think i even made a spreadsheet for like child feeding <laughs> when I, was, I have a thanksgiving spreadsheet i've got my runnings. it's, it's processes has been my, and there's no other way to live. It's a joyful way to live, I think. And so when you're getting your education, you tend to gravitate towards things that you really like to study and things that you tend to be also very good at too, which chemistry and biology together are very quantitative, very process driven. I like to think of chemistry as like one giant riddle. It's, it's, it really is like a logic problem the way that you have to work through equations and has always been very fun to work through those problems. I've always enjoyed problem solving quite a bit. And then the art history component, you know, I honestly, I've I've always loved, I've loved art. Um, I always thought this enriched my education because it helped to give me very strong written communication skills versus the quantitative that you're getting. And it's just an enjoyable subject to study. I don't think I realized the importance of it until I was in management, but it is, it was something that even as a trader, you've got what you've got to do. It's outlined in probably a spreadsheet or at the time it was a homegrown CRM, whatever, whatever it is. And you, you do it, you hold yourself accountable to it and you, you get these things done. And as a salesperson, it's the same way, you know, even as a salesperson, an early stage company, you have to work incredibly hard doing things that, you know, are probably a little bit below you in some ways, you know, making a lot of cold calls, sending emails yourself, right? If you don't have an SDR support, no one else is going to do this for you. So you have to be very process driven and you have to have an understanding of, okay, the the classic funnel story of if I want to hit my quota, okay, how many deals, what's my ASP? Okay, how many deals do I need? Okay, what's my win win rate? Okay, what does that mean from my uh, how many phone calls I need to make to get an opportunity in my pipeline, right? And if you have a strong understanding of that yourself, you know the inputs that yeah. you need to give yourself every day and hold yourself accountable to, And then it becomes, it's easy to hit your targets yeah. from there.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Two questions for you on this. Once you were in a leadership position um, and you were looking at the process and before you, you, you'd you understand the process, you'd followed it um, to the letter to, to be the success, at what point did you start challenging the process and thinking we could probably do this better? Because I imagine we're oh, yeah. thinking, right, this is good, but I reckon there's a few things we mm-hmm. could change. So at what point yeah. did you do that? And what knowledge did you do that off the uh, off the back of?
0: Oh, so early. So I think even as an IC, I was constantly making suggestions on like this is not yeah. a very efficient way to do things. Mm-hmm. It's it's this is another kind of core part of me where you've got your spreadsheets and then you've got like you know you go to a beer garden you see the line wrapped around in the wrong way where you have to like cross the lines together and you're like who set this up
1: <laughs> who, what yeah.
0: inefficient individual designed this process yeah. um so at very early on i started questioning things or you know like it this is su- super helpful in early stage company where you're evolving the product a lot as you're going but you've got like areas where you know I've like I've got my first meeting deck. This was worked really well. Let's share it with others. Or I've got this process down. Like let's share this with others. Or this is a great way to work and prospect in your territory. Let's share this with others. And then as you step into leadership roles, you get to solve even like more fun, inefficient yeah. problems. For example, like standardizing the QBR process, standardizing, measuring whether we, whether reps are having QBRs or not, like getting your dashboard set up, getting a cadence in to check those dashboards with the reps. So dashboard can be all, all fun and games, but if no one's checking it, it's pointless, right? You've got to hold people accountable and set up systems to hold people accountable. So, and I remember like the thing that as a sales manager, as a director, this was, I think one of the most interesting problems that we solved. And it seems like a no brainer at the time, which was this concept of auto renewal, right? We have a SaaS product. It's usually renewed annually. We were manually renewing every deal at the end so we were, you were constrained by how many account managers you could have on it, how many CS people because so much work and energy was going towards a physical renewal yeah I'm like there's a more efficient way to do this. We yeah. can auto renew contracts this is not you know it's not rocket science other companies do it. it it could reduce the load from the reps and the CS teams by 50%. We could leverage them 50% more if we got this right. And it's a, it's an automation thing. So like getting those things set up, working cross-functionally to make sure operationally it's aligned, putting together the project plan to make sure everyone's executing on so that we turn on the auto renewal at the right time. Those have have been really fun projects to solve for, um, in my career. And, And, um, you know, I think the list goes on, but that little change, that one little change overnight helped us increase our low retention by 10 percentage points. It was insane.
1: Yeah. How important do you think then that it is for a sales leader to be constantly looking at ways to improve it rather than thinking, right, we've got the system that works now. Let's Let's just max that out. Is it a critical thing to be constantly looking at different ways to, um, to improve?
0: I think it depends on the leader and it depends on the company. The way I think of roles in an organization is this concept of like tying knots, right? Have you heard of this analogy? I think it's a Radcliffe, analogy. anyway. So as an individual contributor, tying knots, imagine you're on a ship and you've got nautical things going on. So you're tying knots with ropes. And as an individual contributor, you're in charge of tying the knot. You have to just make the good knot make it tight, put it away, or whatever nautical thing you're doing with it. You've gotta be really good at tying the knots. As a manager, you're watching a team tie knots. This will continue with this boat analogy. You're on a boat now. You've got a bunch of individual contributors here. Your job is really to make sure that they're tying the right kinds of knots at the right time, they're nice and tight, and they're like high-performing knots it's really not until you get to the director of the ship or what I would consider more of a director level role where you've gotta be thinking a lot of inefficiencies and efficiencies. So if you've got a big boat and you're the captain of the boat, call it you're the director of the boat, um, maybe you're a manager, maybe you're a frontline manager, you've now gotta be thinking of where are we going? Wait, what are we trying to do? Wait, why are these knots important for us to tie? Yeah. Wait, why is it important that we tie them at this particular time and understand, okay, this boat has got to go, you know, from A to B. If B is where we need to go, these are the types of knots that we need to tie at these particular times. And that muscle of inefficiency and solving efficiencies becomes really important once you get into that director role. And that scope can come into place certainly as a frontline manager and even certainly as an IC, but it's most important once you get to that level. And um, it also depends on that size and scale of, of company. So once you start thinking of where are we going, yeah. how do we get there faster? Yeah. That's yeah. when you need to start really questioning, uh, you know, different ways in your organization to do different things.
1: Love it. On a separate note then around this leadership, you've got your coaching bit that you really enjoy. And I think that obviously goes um, hand in hand with your DNA of who you are. You've got processes going in place that, really knows that you could log on to a computer and really know where your business is at uh, and what's going on how easy was that to replicate into hiring because you're not going to find too many of those people um did you find it very frustrating to start with and and how did you get it because I, i i guessing you really needed to hire process driven people to make sure they fit it into to what you would you were trying to do so how did you I find, find hiring
0: yeah i i don't know if you necessarily so first of all you for the role that you're hiring for i would strongly recommend any hiring manager for any role outlining what strengths they need to hire for that role and it could be different at different organizations it could be different for different roles but first thinking through what does this person need to be really good at in order to be successful at this job and at this company, and then having a hiring process that does recruit different individuals from different backgrounds that all have those similar strengths in this role. So, you know, even at Glassdoor, when we were hiring a lot of frontline um, reps. I don't think we ever, you know, outlined process driven, like a critical component for success, you know, as one of those strengths. We hired a lot for grit, a lot for passion or, and perseverance. We hired a lot for like this mission-driven mentality. We hired a lot for very strong communication skills and really high EQ to be able to communicate things. I do think, and it is, it is a little bit of a kind of roller coaster hiring when you don't quite have the profile locked yeah. in yet. And you certainly, you certainly make mistakes, um, and you certainly have successes. And sometimes, all of those people aren't necessarily cut from the same cloth. So I've always found that really successful hiring processes have a strong element of behavioral interviewing in it. I don't mean the behavioral questions like tell me about a time when you, those don't really tell me very much other than, you know, how quick are you to think of a good example? Um, I mean, like throw people into the fire in a little bit of ways um, and see how they do. We had a lot of, really great success with a few different strategies at Glassdoor to get people almost in-seat experience where a hiring team can see how they would do without actually bringing them on board yet. One of which I think was incredibly successful is just the element of giving someone a hiring, a pitch, you know? So you've got, I think a lot of companies replicate this in sales too, but early on in our hiring process and early in the candidate's, Journey, we would give them a you know five-page PowerPoint, you know, one and a half page script or instead of instructions, depending on the role was a little bit different. And we would have specific criteria that we are looking for in that. And you'd say, okay, let's do a mock, a mock process where you pretend to be Glassdoor and we will pretend to be, you know, a customer that you're selling to. And let's see how well you can sell Glassdoor with a little bit of preparation. Yeah. And very quickly you can see. If someone does well in that process. And yeah. often, more often than not, they'd sink or swim.
1: Yeah.
0: So that I, I always thought this was funny because this was always like our rate limiting step. One out of eight people would pass the pitch. Yeah. So yeah. you could think that they look great on paper. They're great when you talk to them, but you get them in front of a real life scenario and only one out of eight gets through. It's yeah. pretty remarkable um, how much you can whittle that down. So I've been a, a, always a very big fan of that process.
1: I, so, so yeah, we, we're big fans of making sure that some sort of the, the thing about hiring salespeople sales is hugely challenging when you're hiring a technical person, you can give them a technical test and you can rate them where yeah. it. I always say to, to sales leaders, you've got to be able to try and provide a real life environment to see how they're going to perform because salespeople by nature should be good at in an interview because they Mm -hmm. should be able to make you like them and have a good conversation, but what's they like in in front of people? And I think, you know getting people to um to do a picture of, of, of who you are is a really important one because you can really get them to understand do they get who you are and how do they handle the process and what goes on with it but there's another really interesting part that you mentioned to me um, last week about the uh, the brain teaser. the brain teasers the yes <laughs> brain, when,
0: when does
1: uh, when does this come into the interview process oh this is just
0: Yeah, this is just kind of me and a few other people in the org. You know, I think this is a great kind of final interview process where you can see kind of quickly how someone sinks or swims. So salespeople are not, I would generally say not used to getting brain teasers on interviews, especially because it doesn't really apply to your job. You know, if you're trying to Think, like, how many ping-palls fit in an airplane? Yeah. First of all, that's a terrible brain teaser. But yeah. second of all, like, how would that ever really apply? So my most favorite interview question is a brain teaser. And it's very challenging. And if you'd like me to repeat it here, I will. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> do you want it now? You want the I brain teaser? Yeah, yeah.
1: Keen, okay. So that would, yeah.
0: This is my favorite one. So you have nine balls. Yeah. And they all look the same. They all feel the same. They are, they're all virtually identical, but one of those balls weighs slightly more than the other eight balls. And you have one of those scales. It's an equilibrium scale. So imagine like the uh, Libra scale or the statue of Liberty scale. I don't know if we're picking up there that drops down in either direction when you put things on either side of it. Um, And you have two opportunities to weigh the balls. You can put however many on you want on any At any time in any order doesn't matter but you just have two chances to use the scale to weigh the balls how do you find the one ball that weighs more than the others wowes yeah so it's hard It's difficult to get it honestly that probably the i don't i never timed people on it because the average time was probably around like 10 or 15 minutes if you got it fast i'm like you know the you already knew the answer Yeah. and I don't trust you. Did you know the answer? And if they say no, I'm like, I no, yeah, my trust is not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, so it, it would take people quite a, a length of time and they would almost always make the same mistake in the beginning. But what I would look for is not how quickly you could solve the problem or what your th- thought process is, is what is your attitude towards problem solving? So you get a couple different reactions when you ask salespeople a brain teaser like this. They either like you say, "I'm going to ask you a brain teaser," and they're like, "What is it? Yeah, What is the brain teaser? Let's let's try it out." And you can see they're excited. There's yeah. an element of like, "Oh, this is going to be fun." Yeah. Um, on their face, they le- tend to lean in. They'll get you know physically all prepared and ready to go. Um, and then usually those same people during the brain teaser will try. And then they, you know, they might like make a few mistakes and then they'll try again and they'll cross it out. they will try again and they'll cross it. And you can see in their body language and how willing they are to solve the problem. Then there's another type of person that as soon as you ask them, like, can I ask you a brain teaser? They're like, what? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can ask me a brain teaser. (laughs) They're, they're backing away from you you know they are clearly flustered and you know they don't want to do it and often those same people immediately give up yeah. it's like a you know they get they write the whole thing down and they're like huh i don't know what is it yeah what <laughs> you tell me you're going to have to work through this one and You know, it's funny because those same people will ask for help again and again and again and again. And anytime they get even a little bit stuck, they don't want to try themselves. They'll often ask for help. So you get them through this, you get them to the answer. And the answer is kind of complicated to explain. It's not black and white. or It is black and white, I'll say that. But it's, it's not easy to articulate. So you get them to the answer. Usually this takes 10, 15 minutes before they have that aha moment. That's how I solve it. And then you say to them, okay, repeat to me back the problem and the solution as if I don't know it at all, as if you're just teaching me, you're like a friend, I'm a friend. And you, you know, you heard this brain teaser and the answer today, and you're teaching it to me. Yeah. And at that moment, this is a great problem for a salesperson, because this tells the communication skills yeah. really well. And it's a complicated problem that they now have to repeat the problem and repeat an even more complex answer to that they just learned. And this is all, what salespeople have to do all day long is they, you get, they're a new person at this company. They have to understand something that's probably too complicated for them to initially grasp with very little training. And then, you know, within weeks regurgitate it to a particular client as if they are the subject matter expert. So this is like a mini version of the sales process and how well did they listen? Yeah. How well did they understand this problem and how well can they communicate really rapidly? that tends to be the most telling part of the interview for me is, wow, can they grasp and fumble through it? And I, I swear about third of the people who you asked this to can't remember the solution by the time they get around to attempting to explain it. Yeah. And you're like, I, it's not going to work if, yeah. Yeah. if our listening and communication skills yeah. are that low. You know, I think there's so many people they, I think the pressure it turns up because they think that you're, you care about the time and you really don't. You know, no. people who take 20 minutes are often really good at this problem versus people who take five. So it re- watch the communication skills. How well did they articulate it? If you hadn't heard that question before, would you be able to understand the solution? So it that's that's one of my favorite ones for salespeople, even though salespeople don't get asked brain teasers very often.
1: Yeah. I mean, they don't. I mean, I um, I'm in the trade of getting salespeople interviews and I can tell you that in my 18 years I have not come across that but when I sit back and, I, and I've been telling a few people about it since it actually makes perfect sense salespeople are meant to be problem solvers um, yeah. and solve it with technology but they are meant to be problem solvers and particularly now with the consultant world of, of, of where we're going and not only to get them to do the brain team and see how they behave in it but that getting them to repeat it back is, is critical we are we're coming to the end now so I really appreciate your, your your time on this if you were to give one piece of advice to a up-and-coming sales leader what would that be around if it was around process or hiring if there's just one bit of, of advice that you would get them to knuckle down on what would that be
0: Honestly, it's probably around be not being afraid to use those director and efficiency muscles early too. there's more than one way to solve the problem of getting your sales reps to quota. Right. You can coach all of them, which is great. And you should do that to follow an exact process or you can find ways to create, make them more efficient. And that sometimes improves them in the process and sometimes makes the whole company a lot better. So it's not being afraid to see inefficiencies across, look for areas of standardization. And the most important thing is honestly like holding them accountable to it too. You have to create processes around accountability and holding people accountable or else it it just won't get done. And you know, you're kind of left with a team, yeah, so.
1: Excellent. Well, um, Stephen, I really appreciate you taking uh, time out to uh, to talk to us today. I think you've done a uh, an incredible job when you were at Glassdoor, and I think whatever the next opportunity that you that you have, I think you will uh, you will clearly do very well at. But um, I think the listeners will get so much from what you spoke about there, particularly that interview process. I think it's really important, I think it's going to be critical next year with the the amount of this bubble hiring that's going on um, oh yeah moment that the the process is just ultimately the most critical thing to make sure people get it right so thank you for sharing
0: thank you appreciate it james if you like what you've heard today please rate review and subscribe we want you to get involved with tech sales craft and become part of our growing community thanks for joining us